Afrika amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa Jalani Tulo and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, Cameroon defends security forces' response to protests. Ghana's president says he deserves a second term to consolidate gains. And the UN launches record aid appeal to help 93 million people. In economics news, Zimbabwe wants industries to pay in advance for imported power and in sports news Sundowns depart for Japan to take part in the FIFA World Cup. But first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Political talks mediated by the Catholic Church in the Democratic Republic of Congo have reportedly collapsed after President Joseph Kabila's supporters pulled out. Reports say the National Episcopal Conference of Congo, an influential body which represented the church in the country, had been mediating talks between Kabila's supporters and the largest opposition coalition, the Raza Emblement. The talks were aimed at preventing unrest on the 19th of December, the last day of Kabila's second term and the date on which the opposition said he would leave, he should leave office. Ghana's president John Jamani Mahama says if elected for a second term, West Africa's second largest economy, Ghana, will attain middle income status. He told his supporters that a second and final four-year term would help him consolidate gains he has made in infrastructural development across the country. Mahama's main opponent, Nana Akufo-Adu, has accused him of mismanagement and pledged to turn around the economy. Ghana goes to the polls on Wednesday to vote for a president as well as members of parliament. Sarah Kimani reports. Thousands of supporters waving flags and umbrellas bearing the National Democratic Convention and DC colors danced in blue horns. This was a final campaign rally for President John Mahama, the NDC flag bearer. Opinion polls indicate that the election is too close. The 11th hour, Mahama's last push for votes. He told his supporters that the economy, which is projected to grow at 3.3% this year, is on a turnaround. All seven presidential candidates have signed a peace accord pledging to honor the outcome of the polls. Libyan forces say they are close to securing a final patch of land where the Islamic State has been holding out in their former North African stronghold of Sirte. Islamic State took over Sirte early last year. Earlier, 34 Islamic State fighters, including two senior commanders, surrendered to Libyan forces. Three of the Misrata-led forces were killed and 17 wounded. The Syrian government has approved a plan by the United Nations and its partners to send an aid convoy to hard-to-reach and besieged areas, including eastern Aleppo. 
That's according to the UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. The UN and its partner, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, only have access to areas controlled by the government. Dujaric elaborates. On December 2nd, the UN conducted two interagency missions to assess the humanitarian situation in the cotton factory shelter in Jabrin and Hanano in East Aleppo. Hanano is an area of East Aleppo which has been retaken recently by uh, government forces. Neither the UN nor the Syrian Arab Red Crescent have had access to the part of East Aleppo under continued control by armed opposition groups. The UN and the Syrian Arab Red Crescent have only access to government of Syria-controlled areas. And finally, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has expressed sadness at the death of gospel singer Sfiso Ngwane. The 37-year-old multi-award-winning gospel star died from kidney failure at Life Fourways Hospital, north of Johannesburg. Spokesperson for the President, Bongani Ngulunga. Sfiso Ngwane's music touched the hearts of millions of South Africans. And he is very sad that he has passed on at such a young age. And that his death is a huge loss for not only the music industry in South Africa, but for our society as a whole. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Ghana's President John Dramani Mahama says if elected for a second term, West Africa's second largest economy will attain a middle-income status. Mahama told his supporters that a second and final four-year term would help him consolidate gains he has made in infrastructural development across the country. Mahama's main opponent, Nana Akufo-Ado, has accused him of mismanagement and pledged to turn the economy around. Ghana goes to the polls on Wednesday to vote for a president as well as members of parliament. Sarah Kimani has more. Thousands of supporters waving flags and umbrellas bearing the National Democratic Convention, NDC colors, danced in blue horns. This was a final campaign rally for President John Mahama, the NDC flag bearer. Opinion polls indicate that the election is too close. Eleven-dawa, Mahama's last push for votes. I humbly ask for your mandate on Wednesday, 7 December 2016, to complete the journey which we all started together. He told his supporters that the economy, which is projected to grow at 3.3% this year, is on a turnaround. We have made modest gains in stabilizing our economy, resolving a power crisis, and improving our social and economic infrastructure. All seven presidential candidates have signed a peace accord pledging to honor the outcome of the polls. Mahama assured the international community that Ghana, often referred to as one of Africa's most stable democracies, will remain united after Wednesday's elections. It shall not be my portion that under my watch as president, Ghana was consumed by violence. There are 15.7 million registered voters. Sarah Kimani, Accra, Ghana. 
The government of Cameroon says its security forces did not abuse protesters during clashes in two regions last month. Students and professionals in English-speaking parts of Cameroon were denouncing what they call the overbearing influence of the French language in the bilingual country. The United States has expressed deep concern about the situation. The United States ambassador to Cameroon, Michael Hosa, has called for dialogue in solving the unrest. Muki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. Isa Chiruma, Cameroon's Minister of Communication and Government spokesperson, says contrary to widespread media reports, the military did not abuse the fundamental human rights of protesting teachers and lawyers in the northwest and southwest English-speaking regions of the Central African state. Law enforcement officers handled the demonstration in Bameda and Boya with restraint and professionalism in strict compliance with the international laws and commitment of Cameroon in matters of human rights. Nevertheless, investigations are underway and in the event of proven misconduct, the government will take some disciplinary and corrective measures in compliance with the provision laid down by the law. Chiroma said Cameroon will not tolerate any attempts to disrupt the country's hard-earned national unity, insisting that request for Cameroon to return to a federal state, a political system that Cameroon practiced up to 1972, when a referendum scrapped it in favor of a unitary system of government, cannot be granted. Chiroma said he was reacting to a press release issued on November 28 by the White House Public Affairs Office about the strike action in the English-speaking regions, expressing concerns about the repression of demonstrators and human rights abuses by the military that resulted to arrests, injuries, deaths, and destruction of property. The United States Ambassador to Cameroon, Michael Hosa, has also expressed concerns over the wave of violence. He met with Cameroon's President Paul Biya and explained his country's position on the protests that turned violent. It is the American government's position that Cameroon has great strength in diversity. Cameroon has a wonderful history of tolerance. And both uh, President Bia and I agree that dialogue is the future for Cameroon. Uh, We know that there will be discussions, uh, and we are certain uh, that the Cameroonian people will find a solution and be able to live together in tolerance as they have for many, many years. The U.S. has extended its deferral of all non-essential travel for U.S. Embassy personnel to the northwest and southwest regions to December 6 due to the unrest. The ongoing protests were called by lawyers, followed by teachers and then university students protesting the overbearing influence of French in the bilingual country. The military stepped in and the strike became violent. Some ambassadors and diplomatic staff have been calling on their people visiting Cameroon not to travel to the northwest and southwest region until lasting solutions are found and a wave of violence brought under control. 
Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yawundi. Ethiopia has restored mobile internet services after the service was blocked for over two months. The blockage was connected with anti-government protests that broke out largely in the Amara and Orimia regions. Local portals reported that mobile service was restored last Friday after being shut down since October. Ethiopia is currently under a state of emergency with some of the rules being a restriction on access to particular social media platforms. Coletta Wanjohi reports. The Ethiopian government declared a six-month state of emergency in October this year. As one of the directives of that, mobile data was switched off in the capital city Addis Ababa and neighboring regions. The government intended to block social media sites like Facebook and Twitter, which it has continuously blamed for being used by anti-peace protesters to propagate propaganda. But now mobile data is back on. The Minister for Communication, Negeri Lencho, says all these are decisions of the command post that overlooks the state of emergency. In uh, some cities, some parts of the country, still uh, people are using mobile data. But somewhere in some cities, uh, in some parts of the country, there may be some technical problem as well as because of the state of emergency, you know, with relation to um, the problem. Basically, the negative consequence of social media that the government is you know, observing and I hope in the near future uh, things may improve but still the internet is open, we can enjoy using the internet. Minister Negeri adds that there are reports from the security command post that stability is resuming in regions in the country where violence was reported leading to the state of emergency declaration. Uh, we are witnessing uh, improvements not only around Addis Ababa, throughout the country and given that, as His Excellency uh, Prime Minister Haile uh, uh, Mariam Stalin also, uh, uh, you know, uh, stated, uh, there is a possibility of lifting the state of emergency, but we don't uh, actually know how it will happen and when it will happen. I think uh, time will solve this, and we have to wait. The mobile data is still heavily filtered. One can only access such engines, WhatsApp and email accounts. However, social media sites like Facebook and Twitter are still inaccessible on the mobile phones. Coletta Enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Coletta Enjoy for Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Concerned commanders and commissars of MK will convene a council meeting of former MK combatants in the next two weeks in a bid to ensure unity in South Africa's ruling African National Congress ahead of the party's 2017 elective conference. 
The group comprising of, among others, Generals Piwe Nyanda, Tenjue Mdinzo and Tabang Makwetla says it wants to help the ANC overcome its current challenges. Ndebo Mokobo has more. The ANC a party rocked by political infighting and factionalism, and some are now blaming all this for the ANC's poor performance during the August local government elections, with some analysts even predicting that the ANC could lose some of its stronghold provinces and even lose national elections in 2019. But the party leadership is fighting tooth and nail to bring about unity and cohesion in the organization. And the latest in the ring are former MK commanders and commissars who are now calling for a council meeting to save the organization from implosion. This as the party prepares for what many believe will be a hotly leadership contest in December next year. MK veteran and commander General Spiwenyanda elaborates on the rationale of the meeting and who is invited. The council will be representative of all nine provinces and former MK detachments including the Lutuli detachment, June 16, Moncada, Madinoja, Isandwana, Panimolokwane, the Young Lions and internal operatives. The top leadership of the ANC and the executive of MKMVA will be invited. The purpose of the gathering is to bring together former members of MK to assist with the key challenges facing the ANC so that whenever and wherever we participate, we have a consolidated body of opinion to assist the ANC through its present challenges. As some within the organization are jostling for the party's top post, these senior ex-combatants say their primary concern is the unity of the ANC and not positions. MK commander from the Isandwana detachment, Kashabangu, explains. As we gathered here, we have no vested interest in assuming power. Ours is to do a political intervention in assisting the ANC to resolve the problems. So we should never be perceived as people who are power-hungry, who want to replace this or that particular. That's not our primary objective. Primary objective remains to assist this curious organization to resolve the problems that are facing it today. The former commanders also distanced themselves from the previous utterances by MK Military Veterans Association. In the past, the association was involved in a public spat with former public protector advocate Tulima Donzela, accusing her of being an agent of the CIA. Again in a breakaway with tradition, the MK Military Veterans Association has nailed its colors to the mast, naming its preferred choice for ANC president long before the opening of the nomination process, a move seen by many as defiant to ANC traditions. MK veteran Tabam Makweta says they need to communicate with one voice. The situation has arisen within the ANC where unavoidably now and again Umkonto, which is a military veterans association, has been drawn into political issues confronting the ANC. Naturally, the views that they express would not necessarily the views of the broad community of former members of Mkonto Wesizu. And it is our express intention to make sure that MKMVA, in making inputs and assisting the ANC in managing these political challenges, it should benefit from the depth that the former Mkonto Wesizu community has. Former MK commanders and commissars have also denied discussing President Jacob Zuma's future as party president, insisting that he can't be made to shoulder the challenges that have besieged the ANC for years alone. I am Debo Mokobe in Johannesburg.
South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa has called on South Africans to emulate Madiba's legacy, unite and continue his long walk. Ramaphosa was speaking at the third anniversary memorial of the late President Nelson Mandela, where he delivered the keynote address. Mbali Sibanyoni has more. Delegates and dignitaries packed up the auditorium at the Nelson Mandela Foundation Center of Memory to mark the life of the former statesman. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, Mandela's widow, Grasha Michelle, and Max Sisulu were among the people in attendance. Mandela died on the 5th of December in 2013. He was remembered this year at a memorial service. The foundation's Silo Hadang. This is the context within which we must remember and hold the legacy of Madiba Dia. A legacy ultimately not of an individual but of a generation of leadership. It is imperative, I would argue, that in the context of today, we give equal weight to Nelson Mandela, the activist, Nelson Mandela, the freedom fighter, and Nelson Mandela, the peace builder, the peacemaker and democracy builder. The deputy president says much has been done in improving the lives of black people in the country, but admits that there are still disparities between the rich and the poor. Ramaphosa says despite the recent proposal of a 3,500 rand minimum wage, it's still a far cry from a living wage. Whilst we are regarded as a middle-income country, in reality, we should not even be there because so many of our people are way below what you could call middle income. A united South Africa requires the restoration of the land to those who work it. It requires meaningful transfer of ownership and control over our country's natural resources, over the means of production to the people as a whole. The deputy president also highlighted the importance for unity in the country and sharing a common vision for a better society. It is only through unity that we will become effective agents of social change in our country. And it is only through unity that we can improve the lives of our people. Through united action, we can collectively counter the effects of patronage. It is through united action that we will be able to counter corruption and to deal with the sense of entitlement The country is also expected to mark the 20th anniversary of the signing of the Constitution this week. Ramaphosa has also urged citizens to read it. Bali Sibanyoni, Houghton. Unprecedented levels of suffering not seen since the end of the Second World War has prompted a 22.2 billion US dollars appeal for funds, the biggest humanitarian appeal yet by the United Nations. Launching the appeal in Geneva, the UN's aid chief, Stephen O'Brien, said that the objective was to help 93 million people with immediate needs from Yemen to Syria and from South Sudan, Lake Chad to Syria. The appeal covers a total of 33 countries. Daniel Johnson has more. At more than $22 billion, the UN appeal is its biggest humanitarian request yet, and it reflects growing needs. At the appeal launch in Geneva, UN aid chief Stephen O'Brien said the sum will make a vital difference to the lives of millions of people. Yemen is just one of the places where the funding will save lives. 
Mr O'Brien described the situation on the ground. We talk about the bold statistics of there being 26 million people in Yemen, 21.2 of whom have some form of humanitarian need. That's over 80% of the country's population. 14 million are food insecure and 7 million of those do not know where their next meal is coming from. The UN appeal aims to help a total of 93 million people in 33 countries. Apart from Yemen, the biggest needs are in Syria, South Sudan and Nigeria. In the country's northeast, Boko Haram extremists have left a trail of misery that extends beyond its borders. Added to growing humanitarian needs caused by increasing and long-running conflicts are weather-related dangers. The latest El Nino weather phenomenon is blamed for drought, flash floods and wildfires which have pushed millions of already vulnerable people to the brink of survival, the UN says. In Somalia, a chief Stephen O'Brien insisted that international funding had helped to create more resilient communities after learning lessons from a severe drought in 2011. But the UNA chief stressed that 80% of current humanitarian needs stem from man-made conflicts, highlighting the need for greater political involvement in preventing and resolving regional disputes. That message was taken up at the appeal in Geneva by UN partner the Steering Committee for Humanitarian Response, an alliance of international aid organisations. We should never, never forget that humanitarian action cannot be a substitute for political action. We are not going to resolve these crises through humanitarian action. The alliance's executive secretary, Kate Halph. At its best, humanitarian action can save lives and it can give people who are affected by crisis or disaster more options to live in dignity in the areas that they are living in. Under no circumstances should we start believing that humanitarian action can give people a future. Asked about the situation in the Syrian city of Aleppo, Mr O'Brien said that two areas still remain besieged, with 200,000-plus people whose last food delivery arrived on the 15th of November. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. It's 8.25 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The transformation from agrarian to industrial-based economies is a very big challenge for countries in Africa. According to the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, the UN agency's role is to eradicate global poverty by assisting developing and middle-income countries in achieving inclusive and sustainable industrial development. Speaking to Li Ling Huang on the 50th anniversary of the establishment of UNIDO, the Director General there, Li Yong, outlined the key challenges for the continent. Currently, African countries are facing a very big challenge, uh, especially for the transformation of their economy from a roaring to the industrialized status uh, this is a very big challenge for Africa region, particularly two-thirds of least developed countries located in Africa. The big challenge is that under the transformation from agriculture to industry, there's uh, lots of requirements like uh, logistics, road, electricity, water supply, and also the uh, training for the uh, regular workers. Um, in July 2016, the General Assembly proclaimed the third industrial development decade for Africa. It adopted a resolution that called on UNIDO to lead the industrialization process. Why was UNIDO given such a uh, central role? UNIDO is a sole organization focusing on the industrial development among the 
uh, UN agencies. UNIDO has the experience uh, for uh, so many years. After 50 years, it accumulated a lot of experience on how to support the uh, industrial development in member countries, especially developing countries. Also, one of the most important issues I really would like to emphasize here is 2030 Development Agenda, SDG Goal 9, is uh, focusing on the inclusive and sustainable industrialization, infrastructure innovation, which is really incorporate UNIDO's mandate, inclusive and sustainable industrial development. So how does UNIDO promote inclusive and sustainable industrial development in Africa? Among the uh, most of the operations we support uh, Africa, like uh, agro-industry, also environmental protection, renewable energy, those uh, uh, cover a wider range of the projects in Africa. But most importantly, uh, since uh, 2013, we, based on the request of the leaders of uh, Africa, uh, they would like to have industrialization. So we work together with uh, the World Bank, African Development Bank, and jointly uh, develop a strategy uh, to support a country's uh, industrialization. That was Li Yong, Director General of the UN Industrial Development Organization, speaking to Li Ling Huang. Sixteen Days of Activism for No Violence Against Women and Children is an international awareness-raising campaign. It takes place every year from the 25th of November, International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, to the 10th of December, International Human Rights Day. The period includes Universal Children's Day and World AIDS Day. If it doesn't harm you, it is good. If it doesn't harm others, it is good. We are talking about doing good for the sake of goodness. Bambelela, hold on to what is good if you can. If you can do it, just do it. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. South Africa adopted the campaign in 1998 as one of the intervention strategies towards creating a society free of violence. The campaign raises awareness against South Africans about the negative impact of violence against women and children on all its facets of the community. Channel Africa calls on all our listeners to say no to violence against women and children. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. In the headlines, at least 31 people killed in fighting in the DRC between a tribal militia and security forces at the weekend. Ghanaian President John Dramani Mahama says if elected for a second term, the country will attain middle-income status. And Libyan forces say they're close to securing a final patch of land where the Islamic State has been holding out in the former North African stronghold of Sud. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you. And healthy soil enables life on Earth and is one of the biggest bulwarks against climate change, according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. About a third of the world's soil has been degraded, the impacts of which range from food shortages and drought to landslides and floods. Soil degradation particularly affects subsistence farmers. According to Global Soil Partnership consultant at FAO, Lucrezia Kawun, speaking ahead of World Soil Day, which falls on the 5th of December. Andita Listarini asked her about the importance of soil and growing environmentally friendly pulses, which are the theme of this year's International Day. Soil provides a series of ecosystem services uh, which enable life on Earth. What are ecosystem services? Just think like uh, food. The food you eat is an ecosystem services. Uh, soil uh, provides food or the provision of clean water, the protection about, uh, from flooding, uh, climate change adaptation because soil sequester carbon, which means that they store carbon inside uh, their structure inside soil, and this uh, prevents it from escaping to the atmosphere in the form of CO2, for instance, so um, carbon dioxide, and increase the greenhouse gas effect. How threatening is the condition of our soil in this planet now? At the moment, uh, we estimate that there are 33% of soil degraded, and the rate of degradation is from moderate to severe. So it's very important to preserve soil, especially now with the increasing population. What are the repercussions that soil degradation can bring to lives of many people? We will uh, not be able to adapt to climate change and actually we will stress the impact of climate change on our uh, livinghood. And uh, we will have less food, uh, we will have a lot of droughts, if we don't preserve soils. Beside that, we will have landslides and uh, floods. Soil is obviously impacting the lives of many farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are they coping with it? Smallholder farmers will be the most heavily impacted by soil degradation because uh, they depend on closed systems, let's say. Uh, very often, smallholder farmers uh, produce food uh, for self-consumption. If they don't manage to get their food, they will strive to survive. On the global population, which is more market-related, the impact would be less evident under the food production point of view, but still it would be severe if we consider the importance that soil have for climate change. So what can farmers do or like how they can preserve the soil? Well, they should invest uh, not economically eventually but even just in knowledge or make an effort to improve their crop rotation system keep the soil covered which means uh, to have a cover crop that uh, doesn't leave the soil bare and uh, preserve it from erosion this year's theme of world soil day is soil and pulses can you elaborate more on that and why are they so significant and human lives? Pulses are significant uh, to our life or actually are important because they are a valuable source of nutrients which uh, will help us to address uh, food uh, requirements for the coming years especially considering the growing population that we are expecting to have like 9 billion people in 2015. Uh, Beside their direct impact on food 
on food security for people. Um, pulses are important for soil because they enrich it of nutrients. They are responsible for fixing, biologically fixing nitrogen, which means that they take nitrogen from the atmosphere through photosynthesis and they stabilize it in their, in their organs, you know, so for instance the roots. And they don't only take nitrogen for their self-consumption, but they also make it available to other crops in the, in the sequence. Besides that, they uh, mobilize other nutrients, such as phosphorus. Let's talk about the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. How can soil contribute to the realization of those goals? The symbiosis contributes to SDG2 on and hunger, so promote food security and nutrition, because we also have to look not only at the amount of food we produce, but also at the nutritive quality of the food we consume. Then it contributes to SDG 13 on climate change, and this, uh, this links to um, carbon stocks, so to the soil organic matter content. And it links to SDG 15, which is on addressing soil, or actually land degradation, and uh, uh, biodiversity loss. That was Lucrezia Caon, a global soil partnership consultant at FAO, speaking to UN Radio's Andita Listiarini. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Poor communities, even those in developed countries, will feel the impact of climate change the most. That's the message from experts at the third National Conference on Global Change in South Africa's port city of Durban. It brings together tertiary students embarking on green research in areas like climate change, food security, health and pollution. Minoshni Pillay reports. Experts say that while poor countries will bear the brunt of the impact of global warming and climate change, these countries have the knowledge to share with even developed countries on how to tackle these global concerns. Students and senior researchers are meeting in Durban to share the latest findings on how communities, cities and countries can adapt to climate change. Deputy Director General for Research Development and Support at the Department of Science and Technology, Dr. Thomas Ofterheide, says in spite of more global awareness around climate change, the world remains more at risk now than ever before. Atmospheric CO2 is now above 400 parts per million for the first time in several million years. And the global temperature for 2016 thus far is more than one degree above the whole 20th century average. Signs from the poles to the tropics are that the natural world is responding ever faster to these changes, with many risks emerging due to adverse impacts on biodiversity, sea levels, food security, human health and well-being. Masters and PhD students are being encouraged through their research to demystify the jargon to make it more accessible to the general public. Deputy CEO of Research Innovation Support and Advancement at the National Research Foundation, Dr. Ganson Pele, spoke on how different sectors like climatology and urban planning need to work together. A good example of global change is you walk along this beachfront. I walk along there every weekend. And you can see the way the ocean is eroding the entire promenade because of the planning that's taken place that has not taken into account the natural movement of the ocean. We'll take a walk across. You'll see how they are now putting rocks over there. 
to deal with this. A key point of the discussion here focused on aligning climate change goals with development, especially in developing countries. Director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh, Dr. Salimul Haq, says that even in first world countries, poor communities will bear the brunt of increasing severe weather events like floods and storms. As we saw with Hurricane Katrina that hit the United States of America and the state of Louisiana and the city of New Orleans, the most advanced and richest country in the world, could not prevent over a thousand of its own citizens dying from that event, even though they saw it coming. The rich people evacuated, but the people who died, 100% of them, were black poor people living in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. So even in rich countries, the most vulnerable communities are the poorest communities. Huck revealed details about plans in Bangladesh to support farming and fishing communities along the coast that could lose their livelihood in the next 20 years due to increased flooding. He says it's about working with communities to keep them sustainable and by giving them choices. In the longer term, enabling them, and, and over that time scale, it's actually their children, educating them, empowering them, giving them skills so that they can move to the cities and towns and get jobs there and then take their parents with them. So helping, supporting, enabling migration of people at their own will, economically better off. Huck argues that while developing countries battle to find funding to support adaptation efforts, they often have the most knowledge because they live with the impact of climate change every day. I'm Minoshni Pele in Durban. The family of late South African gospel musicians Fiso Nwane say they are putting everything before the Lord during this difficult period. The award-winning gospel sensation lost his battle with kidney failure yesterday morning at a Johannesburg hospital. Nwane was best known for songs of praise to God, which include Gulungile Baba and Bayete Baba. Neliswama Vundla reports. Born and bred at Mtualome in KwaZulu Natal, he conquered so much in the gospel music industry. His family, friends, fans, and all those who admired the 37 year old gospel musician say he is gone too soon. Nwane came to know Jesus at a very young age and his talent was discovered by the church he attended in his village. His music flourished, touching thousands of lives, many who were lost and seeking comfort in the Lord. Nwane leaves behind his wife and manager Ayanda and three children. Family spokesperson Mlo Gomete says they are battling to come to terms with the passing of their loved one but will seek refuge in the Lord just as Nguane would have done. This was a man of prayer. Ayanda is a woman of prayer. She's a prayer warrior as well as a wife. There's no surmising how the family is going to deal with it. It's a matter of putting everything before the Lord and trusting he'll help us heal and help the family. Even the fans, because of the Lord, also so dearly, we hope he would pray and the Lord would be a cushion for all of us. <laughs> Poet and musician Mzwa Kembuli is among those who sent their condolences to the Nwane family. 
he described Ngwane as a talented man who touched the hearts of many through his music. Well, he was so relevant to a point where you know, his song, the most popular song, he used it, it became versatile and relevant to almost all generals, especially people that uh, actually passed one because the song was about the fact that whatever happens, tragedy at the end of the day, that will be done. When he was scheduled to perform at an event in Johannesburg on Sunday, however, he could not get on stage. He said he was feeling weak and had to be taken home. Later that evening, his condition deteriorated and he was rushed to Life Fourways Hospital, north of Johannesburg, where he died on Monday morning. Fellow gospel musician Sipo Makabane says Nguane was overcome by an ailment that prevented him from delivering a top performance as he always does for his fans. He was a man who was doing great good when he, when he was on stage. When you see his fans, he was doing his job uh, to the fullest. But unfortunately, when the time comes, and then there's nothing we have to do. And then these are the big laws in our country, and then we just morning and then we just want to say to the fellow South Africans in Africa, we lost a giant. It's a lot. Gospel singer Tina Zungu has described the 37-year-old as brotherly and a mentor with a great sense of fashion. He was a brother more than anything. Um, he used to guide us in everything. In many things, he used to give us advices. Even the way you present yourself, the way you dress, everyone knows that so always dressed to kill. So we always like that about him. His latest album, Wetembegi Lebaba, was released in June this year. Nguane's achievements include the South African Music Award Record of the Year as well as an African Gospel Music Award. Zanele Mbogazi of the World Gospel Powerhouse says Nguane has left a mark in the gospel industry. On behalf of the World Gospel Powerhouse and the SABC Crown Gospel Music Awards, we want to salute this legend. We want to salute this young soul. Sito Nguane had a tremendous impact in the gospel music industry. We will always cherish and remember his songs that became anthems, especially Gulungi Lebaba. Hagama, Umkulego, and many others. We salute him and may his soul rest in peace. That report by Neliswa Mavundla in Durban. Our economics update up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Zimbabwe's state electricity distribution company has asked industrial customers to pay in advance in foreign currency for imported power for power rather for imported power from South Africa and Mozambique. This comes as generation from the Kariba South hydropower plant slumps and because of a U.S. dollar shortage in the country. Zimbabwe is importing a significant amount of its power from South Africa and Mozambique, mainly due to depressed generation from Kariba. Power production from the Kariba power plant has fallen as a drought left the, reserve le- the, the reservoir levels at its lowest in decades, while the country has been short of foreign currency 
currency for the month. This has led to the non-payment of salaries to government workers and limits on withdrawals from cash machines. CEO of Zesa Josh Chifamba last month warned of power cuts due to dollar shortages, saying that while five million US dollars was needed a week for power imports, the country's central bank was only allocating it one point five million dollars. Debt-ridden Mozambique has no chance of meeting its year-end deadline for a restructuring deal. This according to investors who want the country to be clear on what it owes and to whom. The country has seen its currency and investor confidence collapse since April when the IMF halted a loan after uncovering previously undisclosed debts that had not been approved by Parliament. Mozambique says its debt position is unsustainable and wants an urgent restructuring agreement with commercial creditors so a new IMF loan can be approved. South Africa's Barclays and Netbank say they will this week file legal applications similar to First Rain's decision to close the accounts of Oak Bay Investments, a company controlled by the Gupta brothers. First Rand has been the first lender to publicly disclose reasons for severing links earlier this year with the family. Between December 2015 and April this year, all four major banks, including Standard Bank, Netbank and Barclays Africa, terminated the accounts of companies controlled by the Gupta family without making their reasons public. Sasha Naidu reports. The bank says suspicions of money laundering lay behind its decision to close the accounts. The Gupta's lawyer, Harold van der Merwe, has said suspicions of money laundering were groundless. Van der Merwe said it took the accusation seriously and that it would deal with them in its own court application to be filed by the end of the year. Last week, President Jacob Zuma sent to Parliament an anti-money laundering bill that would have increased scrutiny of the bank accounts of prominent individuals, including himself. He declined to sign it into law, saying it might not be constitutional. South Africa's Food and Allied Workers Union has called on government to review trade agreements that have resulted in cheap chicken imports flooding the country's markets. The union blames the looming job losses in the poultry industry on cheap chicken imports from the European Union and the the U.S. and Brazil. About 6,000 workers in the country are at risk of losing their jobs as a result of low turnover from poultry farmers. Union Secretary General Katishi Masimola explains. Well, there are several avenues available to government. Uh, it can do anti-dumping duties, impose them, such that the dumped chicken from EU is not allowed to be sold at the ridiculously low prices that is being sold. Uh, it can seek to review as the second uh, possibility an agreement uh, with the European Union such that tariffs can be uh, can be uh, utilized to protect South Africa's poultry industry. And finally, Namibia is willing to be Africa's logistics hub in the wake of the launch of the Continental Free Trade Year trade area, CFTA. This is according to the country's trade minister, Emmanuel Ngachizeko. Ngachizeko was speaking at the first ever Africa Trade Forum in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia at the weekend. He said for the CFTA to be implemented, it is crucial that there should be infrastructure development such as corridor logistics. The trade forum that was organized by the African Union and took place from November 28th to December 3rd brought together countries to discuss challenges hindering intra-trade flow. And finally, the U.S. 
US dollar is trading at 1382 to the South African Rand, 1055 to the Botswana Pula, and at 982 to the Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 078 to the British pound, 093 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is at $1,173, platinum at $937 an ounce, and finally the price of Brent crude is at $54.57 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, starting off with rugby news. The Blitz Borke captain, Philips Neyman, acknowledges that there will be a lot of expectation for his team ahead of the Cape Town League of the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series, especially after their win in Dubai over the weekend. The Blitz Borke will go into their home tournament as defending champions after winning the inaugural tournament to be held at the Cape Town Stadium in the Mother City. Sneeman says there is still a lot of room for improvement for his side and believes that they can get better. Yes, there will be expectations and we need to start all over again. And yes, it was a great tournament for us in Dubai, but there's always room for improvement and I think we can work on one or two small things that we can, can do better next weekend. Like I said, there's room for improvement. I, I, I still think that we can be a better team than we were this weekend. Sneeman believes they have taken a lot of confidence from their win in Dubai and beating Olympic gold medalist Fiji in Saturday's final is a good foundation for the rest of the season. Yes, it was very special, as I must say, and we put the Olympics behind us, but Fiji is a very quality side, and especially coming into this new World Series now. We need to lay a good foundation going onwards with this competition, and is exactly what we did. So very happy with the win, and hopefully we can take some confidence going into Cape Town now and yeah, make the nation proud. And in football news, South African Mamelodi Sundowns coach Peter Musimane says they prefer to play against Auckland City from New Zealand in the FIFA Club World Cup, which kicks off in Japan on Thursday. The Brazilians departed for the Far East late on Monday at OR Dambo International Airport. The African champions will face the playoff winner of either Oceania champions Auckland City or Japanese champions Kashima Antlers in the quarterfinals on Sunday. Musimane would prefer to avoid the host team Antlers for many reasons. I don't know. The Antlers have made it. Uh, you never know. I, my opinion, the New Zealand team maybe because I don't like to play against a team that's playing at home. Eh? So home decision and all that, you know. But with the New Zealand team, I think uh, we are all Auckland City. We are is is neutral ground. Eh? Sundowns have embarked on a long journey to Osaka, Japan, and will have to counter jacked leg and other factors ahead of the tournament. That's the reason why they left a week early to acclimatize to the conditions and the time difference of seven hours ahead. But Musimani says they have everything under control. Yeah, jet lag will be there, but we've got the doctors, we've got the physio of how we need to try and kill the, the six hours difference uh, that are ahead of us. Um, yeah, what's important is to, to sleep at the right time, sleep at the right, the right, the, the, the time in Osaka and, 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 and catch up with the day. Even if you sleep longer, it's okay, but you get well. But if, if you come like in the morning and then you sleep, 
then at night you're awake. You see, that's the trick. So we need to make sure we, we settle that. For me, just sleeping tablets on the flight. That's it. And then I'm down and out. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sala Cameroon Defense Security Forces response to protests. Ghana's president says he deserves a second term to consolidate gains. And UN launches record aid appeal to help 93 million people. That wraps up. Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutora Magadza and Tutungubeni, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.ca or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. I'm taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Techno with a song titled Panna.